So Marguerite Alzasa was hired in December 2021 as the head women's soccer coach at UCLA. Less than a year later, she makes history by becoming the first rookie head coach and first woman of color to ever win the NCAA Division I Women's Soccer National Championship. It's an amazing story, one that you might have already heard, but that's not the biggest reason that she is our guest on the podcast these next two episodes. She's with us because of the type of leader she is, the type of person she is. I know you're going to sense that and feel that in this interview, as well as you're going to really appreciate and find a lot of value in this interview because it isn't just a bunch of coach maxims and great sayings. I think what I really appreciate or one of the things that I really appreciate about Marguerite is that she's willing to share to really get into the details of how she has built that culture. She gets into, in this episode, into the first 90 days of how she laid that foundation. She shares a little bit about how she embraced a culture of joy and silliness, how they hold players accountable at UCLA without yelling or screaming, and how they handle that big issue in so many teams, that one around playing time. Welcome to the Coaching Culture Podcast. My name is JP Nurbin, and I'm joined by my friends and co-hosts, Nate Sanderson and Betsy Butterick. I started this podcast in 2017 to help listeners grow as a leader and build a stronger team culture. In addition to this podcast, I'm a leadership coach, culture consultant, and the author of The Culture System and The, and the Sports Parent Solution. To learn more about how my business, TOC, can support you and your organization, visit tocculture.com. My Twitter's at JP Nurbin, and my Instagram's at TOC Culture. To learn more about Betsy and her work as a leadership coach and facilitator, go to BetsyButterick.com and her Instagram is at Betsy underscore the coaches coach. We are here today with our guest, Marguerite Auzasa, and she is currently the head coach at UCLA for women's soccer. Her background involves being a player at Santa Clara University and then seven years as an assistant coach at Stanford University. And we are thrilled to have her join us today um, to talk about all things culture and soccer and sport. Um, so Marguerite, thank you so much for making time to join us today. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. When we first met, and this is a little background for the audience, um, I had the pleasure of being invited to support Marguerite once she accepted the head coaching position at UCLA. As a first time head coach, the institution wanted to make sure that they were doing everything they could to support her first time journey. And I believe it was our, our first or second conversation. I quickly realized Marguerite did not need my help at all. Thankfully, we enjoyed the conversation so much that we kept talking, but Marguerite, from a, a very early entry point with your time as a first time head coach at a school like UCLA with such a storied program, it was easily apparent that you were already planning to do or doing all the things that most people would identify as best practices. Would you start by walking us through first 60 days taking over a program as a first-time head coach what were your focal areas and how did you go about being intentional with regards to building culture so the biggest kind of hurdle i ran into was the fact that i really didn't know the players like i knew having been having been at stanford i knew them from the outside looking in but i really didn't have a personal relationship with any of them and so the very, very first thing I did, and part of this was facilitated by COVID, meaning that we weren't actually allowed to train in the first week that I was there. Um, but I used that time to meet individually with every single player. And the conversation was very open. I didn't have a lot of direction in it. It was really just 
Like what has been your experience so far? What are you hoping to get out of this experience? And is there anything I can do or anything I should know to kind of help you do that? Um, I found myself kind of battling this conflict of like, how much do I kind of step in and insert myself and kind of like go down a path that was kind of predetermined before I met the group versus what do I do when all of a sudden like that path doesn't really seem appropriate. And so I found myself like, I think the ability to be flexible and adaptable became super, super important as I recognized like the plans I had before I knew the group really weren't going to apply, nor were they going to be very effective. Um, And so in that first 60 days, it was like, getting to know the group, being very honest about where they are, both on the field, off the field, and then kind of creating a plan in those first 60 days to implement over the next six months that was going to help them, one, get to where they needed to be on the field, and then two, help us kind of establish a culture that was sustainable. You think you can give us an example of maybe an intention you might have had when you took that job? And then as you started to get to know some of the players, and I'm sure some of the coaches as well, where you had to pivot and kind of work in a different direction. Yeah. So like my, my pathway is really unique in that the only college coaching job I had had before UCLA was Stanford. And that, that just doesn't happen very often. And so all my experiences as a college coach were kind of in that bubble, in that arena and Stanford, just based on its kind of institutional values is very um, kind of regimented and that fits the players that they have. It also fits the culture of the school. And when I got to UCLA, I recognized very quickly that that was not the group that I was coaching. So when I first approached practice, you know, I was kind of thinking it would be one of those things. Like as soon as you step onto the field, like we're all business, we're this, we're that, we're very serious. Cause that's what I had known. And within probably the first week of training, I recognized like this group is hilarious. They are so like fun and joyful and loud. And I could either try to really like bring them back maybe, or kind of like put these guidelines in place where we do that off the field, we don't do it on the field, or we can make a conscious decision to just embrace that as part of who we are. And so I kind of took the path of least resistance and just was like, you know what, there's no way I'm going to like put them in this box of rigidity. So we're just going to embrace that. We're going to instead kind of teach them when it's okay to do that versus when we need to kind of switch to being all business and navigate that ability as opposed to just like, try to keep them really serious all the time. Now our group, like I think people will come to our environment and be very surprised in some way that we are one of the top teams in the country because the, the vibe of practice is like really fun, like hilarious. They're joking, they're laughing. And sometimes I think people would look and be like, wow, this team is not very serious, but they kind of are very good now at switching between like, kind of uncontrolled laughter to, okay, now next five minutes, we need focus. So just a quick timeout and this conversation to tell you about why you should consider subscribing to the TOC newsletter. Every Thursday, you'll receive a short article from Nate or myself, and you'll also receive the notes to each episode of the podcast, as well as our top 10 podcast episodes and my top 10 articles. Subscribe using the link in the description of this episode, or simply go to tocculture.com and click on newsletter. And Marguerite, you've just given everyone a perfect example of why I mentioned before that you were already doing the things that would be understood to be best practices for many coaches across different sports. 
When you talk about this flexibility, and I think that that's where a lot of coaches today find themselves challenged is adapting to coaching this generation of student athletes. But you so easily are like, oh yeah, the plans I had are gonna go out the window in service of the people that are in front of me, which again, I hold so much gratitude for. Talk a little bit, if you will, about how did you go about teaching your team to recognize those moments of when we can be our authentic selves and joyful and goof around and when it's time to get serious? How was that taught? Yeah, so a lot of it just came to being very clear about what those moments were. So for instance, like you can be joking, you can be laughing, making jokes that like our team is doing cartwheels like at times. But as soon as we're as as soon as a coach is making a point or as soon as a coach is talking, that means you have to be quiet. Because I'm like, I'm we're not going to sit here and try to speak over you. Now we are fairly patient and like we'll kind of wait for a lull in the laughter to kind of like make our point. But they know, okay, as soon as we're talking, that means we're serious. Um, water breaks and stuff like that, we probably give them an extra two, three minutes to goof around. And that's just, we've just kind of accepted that. But they know, again, as soon as the exercise starts, we need focus. There are times where we can feel the momentum of the practice going a little goofy. And we'll kind of like do an intentional reset. And we'll say, look, you got, we need you for four more minutes. And then kind of let them go again. So I think just through practice um, and repetition, they've really learned like what are the moments we can be like goofing and laugh or goofy and laughing? What are the moments we need to be a little more serious? Sometimes at the beginning of training too, we'll kind of set the tone where it's like, look, you guys, today we got 45 minutes. We need to be super serious. Can you do that for us? And then it kind of sometimes yes, sometimes it's no, but we kind of will like set the tone of training kind of in that little pre-practice huddle. And listening to a couple of conversations that you've had on some other podcasts, you talk about kind of the balance or the ability in your program to both compete at a really high level and have a great time doing it. And I think a lot of times coaches feel like those two things are mutually, you know, exclusive. You can be one, we're going to be serious and we're going to be hardworking and we're going to, you know, aspire to greatness, but at a consequence of having fun. So how do you balance those two things within your program? Yeah. So when I first took the job, the person I consider my greatest mentor, his name's Albertine Montoya. He, he said that to me. And the reason he is such a huge influence in my life is because he was my coach for 10 years plus when I was a youth player. And when I took the job, like he said, he's like, just remember, Mark, like you do not have to be like super serious. You can be one of the best teams in the country and you guys can have an absolute blast. Like people will say you can't, but you can. And that just stuck with me. And I think when I met the group, it seemed even more natural to do that. So for us, like we, we embrace competitiveness, but we also recognize and acknowledge that like competitiveness, honesty, like holding people accountable, all of these things, like they don't have to be harsh. And I think when you are able to kind of dispel that myth, then all of a sudden like competition is fun holding people accountable doesn't have to be as like implosive maybe or disruptive as it's kind of made out to be. And so when you limit those disruptions or kind of create a space where kind of the parts of competition that take away from fun are a little more innocuous, then I think the fun comes out. And so we just really focus on that where it's like competition is fun. And we will say like, if you don't enjoy, it's like, if you don't enjoy competing, this may not be the level for you which is just the truth. Um, we'll do like 
make competition funny where you're still working hard. Like we'll do a thing in training where if we're doing a three team tournament, the team that's out, will say like, well, this is not real betting. So NCAA can't get upset, but we'll say like, choose which team you think is going to win. And if the team that you think is going to win loses, oftentimes like you do the running with them. So it's like, you kind of put a little weight on the competition, but it's still funny. They are like cracking up when they choose a team that, you know, hasn't won a game or whatever it is. Um, the other piece is like going into big games. I think that's really a good time to set the tone of like this level of competition, this level of pressure is fun. Um, and then I think as a staff, we have a huge responsibility to set that tone in that, like when our players make mistakes, we tell them like, we will only yell at you if you don't run back. Like, I'm never going to yell at you for trying something. I'm never going to yell at you for expressing yourself. We talk about like the ver variance and variability within our team is a really, really powerful thing. So the way we coach is very much like putting guidelines as opposed to putting restrictions. And I think because of that, like there's a, there's a lot less anxiety that our players associate with competition. That was a lot Marguerite. of things. <laughs> I was going to say, you just, you mentioned so many things that I, I have this desire to do a deeper dive on. I want to rewind a little bit and focus on what we hear as one of the major challenges for coaches across sport today, which is accountability. Layering mm -hmm. onto it the fact that one of the hallmarks of Gen Z is that they are disproportionately focused on obtaining peer validation. And so what we hear from coaches are kids these days are afraid to hold each other accountable. What we know to be true is that within that phrase, what's most accurate is kids these days may not yet have the skills to know how to hold each other accountable in a way that doesn't also threaten the relationship. Talk to us, if you will, about how, how do you teach that skill of accountability doesn't mean the end of a relationship within your program? Yeah, so there's kind of two pieces to it. I think the first one is modeling. Like we hold our players accountable all the time, but we almost never call someone out. We almost never raise our voice. We almost never kind of like use that as a moment um, to kind of make an example of somebody. I think we're very sensitive in how we hold players accountable. And I think then they take that as kind of a example of how to do that. So if there is a player, for instance, that is late to training, we'll usually just say, hey, do you have a minute after practice? And we'll just pull them aside and very calmly just say, hey, look, first, we usually ask, like, what's going on? Like, are you OK? Because there has to be a reason why you came late to practice. Sometimes they're just being irresponsible. And we've kind of created a space where they can say that. And we'll just say, look, like, it's not a good look for you. It's not a look, good look for the group. Like, we really need you to be on time. There's other times and it feels like more often they'll say, oh, well, I was up till three in the morning. I didn't sleep well. Something's going on at school. And so then we often say, like, how can we help you? Is there anything we can do? So then our hope is that when they when we ask them to hold each other accountable, generally that's the reason. And what we'll found, we found is a lot of um, an instance that comes up quite a bit is when someone is not communicating well at training. Say they're like snapping at somebody or they got upset when they got kind of coached by a peer or something like that. And so when they go and say like, hey, I didn't really appreciate how you snap back at me. We often say like, generally, usually there's something going on. So you can ask like, are you okay? Like, is there something going on at training that you made you irritable or like what's happening? 
And so it it is part of like holding them accountable. It's also, I think, strengthens the relationship. Um, and like I said, that piece, I think, is the modeling piece. We really try to do that every time we quote unquote hold someone accountable. The other piece is just like talking about it. So we do a lot of team building um, centered around communication. Um, we did a whole thing on like rumble conversations, kind of like how to address conflict within a group. And I thought that the players really enjoyed that. Um, we kind of like modeled conversations. It was hilarious. We also modeled a couple Molly and my, or me and my two assistants, Molly and Goff. We did some great acting and showed some like <laughs> scenarios that could cause conflict. One was like, okay, your roommate leaves a lot of dirty dishes. Like, how would you address your roommate? Um, another one was like, we train in the morning. So some people are more morning people than others. And it was like, you play music way too loud in the, in the locker room at 630 in the morning. How do you address that? The other one was like, I think it was, yeah, communication on the field. And so it was a, it was a big laugh. Everyone was cracking up, but some of our players would be like, okay, so I talked to my roommate and I was able to use the conversation. <laughs> so kind of in two ways, we're very intentional, the modeling piece, and then kind of like actively teaching them and rehearsing some of the tools they could use to address conflict and, and hold people accountable. All right, just a quick timeout to tell you about my latest book, The Sports Parent Solution, Proven Strategies for Transforming Parents from Obstacles to Allies. This groundbreaking book gives you the strategies and methods you need to transform the parent culture in your team, allowing you to better support each athlete's growth, improve your team's performance, and create an extraordinary experience for everyone involved. It's available on Amazon and Apple Books. You can learn more about it and download the bonuses at my website, tocculture.com. One of the things that I always appreciated about how you built culture and how you develop team dynamics within the program is exactly what you were just explaining, the different types of exercises that you've done. One thing I noticed about the way that you and your staff coach that may be different from other programs is within your program, team building, leadership development is never a one-time thing. It's a consistent touch point within the program throughout the season, not just in year one either, but in year two as well. Talk to us a little bit about what are some of the ways that you're intentional about helping the players continually get to know each other while also learning more about you and your staff? Yeah, so throughout the season, we kind of structure time for relationship building. Um, a lot of it is through, we call it team development. And the reason we call it that is sometimes it's more your traditional like team building exercises, um, you know, mouse traps and stuff like that that are not really soccer related. Other times it'll be conversations about the game. It's just kind of a umbrella term we use to help our team get better off the field. Um, my assistant Molly, she heads a lot of this and we really try to balance like what are, or we balance those sessions with kind of teaching moments and teaching conversations versus relationship building conversations or relationship building activities. Um, we value them both equally. I would say. And it kind of just depends what part of the season we're in. So typically earlier in the season, we do a little more on the getting to know you side. Later in the season, they're a little more instructional. Um, some exercises we've done, we do, they're just funny. Sometimes we think it's never going to work and then it's their favorite thing. Um, <laughs> one we did this year was shrinky dinks. So like our players, I'm sure grew up making them, but you know, you draw on a little plastic and then we bake it and it, closes down. So 
we did um, like personal mantras. So it's, you know, something you say to yourself when you're feeling down or when you're feeling unmotivated or whatever. And so they created those. And then if you wanted to, you could share it with the group. That turned out to be a really fun thing and very insightful. So like what I say to myself is completely polar opposite of what, for instance, my assistant Molly says. And it was really cool to see, okay, like when I'm struggling, this is what I say. My What I say is, we're going to figure it out. That's just like what I say. And it was so funny because the girls kept saying like all of these things you say, like are so um, representative of your personality. Like almost everything someone said, it's like, okay, my hardest moments is I say to myself, it was like, wow, that explains you so well. So that one was kind of a both kind of a team development, very uh, kind of instruct, not instructional, but purposeful. And it also gave us a lot of insight. Um, other ones will do like, I think Molly calls it speed friending, but you know, like one, one group is sitting, one group is standing and we just like ask rapid fire questions and it's just like, okay, you got 15 seconds answer. Okay. Everybody rotate 15 seconds. Um, just to, those types of things. But some of our team development, they're 15 minutes long. Some are like an hour long, but we really do try to prioritize like getting to know you and then being more intentional about instruction or conflict resolution, like those types of things that we think will help our group. I think one of the things that we run into sometimes when we encourage coaches and teams to do these kinds of activities where I think I would describe it as we're just allowing our players to be seen for who they are and it be okay to be who they are, you know, in the context of where they're at in our team. But I think some coaches will push back and say, but that, friendly stuff, you know, that soft skill stuff, it doesn't matter on the field. Like, do you see the transfer of those relationships and that psychological safety transfer into how they play together on the field? Yeah, 100%. Some of the best compliments we get as a program are like, your team just looks like they're having a blast. Like to me, that's a huge compliment. And it's almost like the cherry on top that we're also very good at soccer, but it is so special that it's like your team is just enjoying it. And then they'll say, oh, like you can tell even the way the players on the bench, even the way they're interacting kind of with the game and with the players on the field, it's very, very clear that there's a lot of care between the two. Um, we had a great example this year where kind of our starting outside back, her she's a transfer student and the player that kind of competes with her also a transfer student. So they're both like first year players on our team. We went into a game short players and there was a chance I was going to have to use the starting right back as a right forward just to give us a little more in the attack. And I brought it up to her like two days before the game. And I was just like, hey, there's a chance you could play forward. She goes, oh, so does that mean Emily will play right back? And I was like, yeah. She's like, oh, that's great. Oh, she's going to kill it. She's got it. And it it shows in those moments where like I feel our players rally around each other to be successful on the field. And when like you have players doing that kind of making their best effort so that you're successful, obviously I think the level of play just skyrockets. Um, there's very little, I think, resentment within the group. We often say like, if your best friend on the team is complaining about playing time, like your kind of required response is, wow, like I can tell that really upsets you, but have you talked to the coaches about it? So we try to kind of, remove conflict from their environment 
and encourage them to bring it to us so that then we're the ones kind of managing. So then their environment can stay really positive and can stay kind of um, just less, not competition, but less conflict between players. That's awesome. And so appreciated, Marguerite, about how you're intentional about having very transparent conversations. I'm going to ask a challenging question. And I know based off of what you shared, you're going to figure it out. Um, How do you, let's say you've got a senior starter within the program and four games in, you decide, you know what, they're no longer the best person at this time to, to start in the upcoming game that we have. Talk to us about timeline. Talk to us about conversation. How do you address that with that player, knowing that for them, this is going to be a really big shift? Yeah. So we do a lot of um, like preemptive conversations. Um, so what we would probably do, we if we know that that is a conversation we're having as a staff, we probably let that player know two or three days before the game. And what we'll say is, hey, there if if the decision still is not really made, we'll kind of say, hey, there's a possibility that we're going to make a change that you may not start. Then we generally kind of outline what the expectation would be for them in terms of like, this is, okay, I know that's hard news to hear, but this is what we need to see in training. This is what we'll need to see in the game. Usually if it's, if we're making that change, there's a reason, you know, we don't just like pull names out of a hat. So it might be tactically, we're doing something a little different. And so we'll tell them that, look, it, this one maybe doesn't have a lot to do with how you're playing, but it has a lot to do with the strategy we're going to employ. So it may not make sense for you to be there. We need to go with someone who's a little more defensive. Fine. It may be performance-based and we can say to them, this is what we're seeing. We want to give her a chance because she gives us this. If you want to continue to compete in this position, this is what we need to see. And so we try to just be very open um, with how the decisions are made. I think there's kind of another misconception that like you shouldn't talk to players about other players or you shouldn't give them too much information or whatever it is. And we constantly tell our players like these decisions are not made lightly. These decisions are very, very thoughtful. There's a reason always that we choose one or the other. Sometimes it could be attitude. And we've had that on our team. I'm like, look, I, I know that you've been performing better. But I also know based on your behavior, the team is not in a place to trust you there. So we're not playing you there. And sometimes those things are hard to say, but I always feel like if they have the actual truth of why the decision was made, then they can then they kind of have an easier time accepting it. And then if we give them the truth coupled with what we need to see to change it, then they also have the solution to change their situation. So I feel like kind of giving them those two things really helps us manage kind of those harder conversations. Okay, just one more quick time to tell you about the TOC Transformational Coaching and Culture Certification. It's the most practical, comprehensive, and essential coach education on the market today. We offer three levels of certification, each taking up to three hours each, and they come with high-quality videos, digital resources to simplify the process of building your team's culture, and a group chat to ask me and other coaches questions as you go through the course. To learn more about this and my other online courses, go to tocculture.com. When you're making a lineup change that is based on performance, like one of the criticisms that I've heard over the years of coaches and received myself is that, all right, let's say eight games into the season, we make a switch. And the criticism is, well, now you've taken away that player's confidence that was once starting for you. So now you're asking her to come off the bench in a different role. 
but really you've just said this is coming from the parents a lot right but that you don't trust her and the reality of that in the back of my mind is well that's right i don't trust her because of x y or z but how do you try to navigate that in a way that you're trying to not damage her confidence too much but yet obviously you're still trying to do what's best for the team uh, I will say confidence is the hardest word we deal with <laughs> in our entire profession. Um, and whenever they, like when a player says that to me, we always say, yeah, I completely understand. Um, and when it comes to this idea of trust, we don't often say trust. We'll kind of say like, we'll use reliability kind of as a word. Cause I think that one's a little easier to hear than like, I don't trust you is more of like, I don't feel you're reliable in this situation is maybe a little easier um, and when it comes to confidence, you know, we'll kind of say like one co confidence is not built in the game. That's not the time to build your confidence, right? Like confidence is built in training. And also, you know, we kind of will always say like, we're not going to have this conversation with you if we didn't want you to succeed. If we didn't want you to play, like I would just keep you on the bench and there'd be nothing really to say. Um, I think the the other part of what we hear quite often kind of related to this is like when a re reserve player is playing and they're like, well, I never get to play with the starters. So therefore I don't play well when I'm with them. And we try to, we always have to kind of manage the confidence conversation and that conversation kind of separate from what the decision is actually being made on, which is performance. We also are very honest with them. when like, part of playing is being confident. So you're then also asking me to play you and you're not confident. Like that's kind of a catch 22 a little bit where I'm like, you got to have to decide like how, and we're going to help you figure out how to be successful in those moments. Because for you to also tell me like, well, I don't feel confident in a weird way. That's actually a reason not to play you, not a reason to play you more. So let's figure out a way to help you build confidence that doesn't have to do with your playing time. Um, but it is really difficult. Like there's no easy way we'll also say like it's okay to be upset about this decision like that's okay being upset also doesn't necessarily relate to confidence like you can just be upset that's fine because I think sometimes they they feel upset and the way they put that in a way like that feels more appropriate is to say well I'm I'm not feeling confident and I'm like maybe you are feeling confident and maybe you really think you'd be playing you're just upset that you're not um, but there's a lot to that. And I do think player by player, you have to be really thoughtful of how you navigate the conversation. Um, but that is a big challenge. The confidence question is a really big challenge in coaching, I would say. And for if anyone finds the solution, I think we'd all be really happy to hear it. Yeah, well, we definitely don't have it figured out. I've been doing this for 22 years and still trying to, you know, figure out how to navigate those conversations. But one word that I, I do think that we've more effectively used over the last few years is the idea of consistency because consistency says I know you can do it I've seen you do it we just have to find a way to do it more often or more frequently or as you said more reliably um, whereas you know just saying well I don't trust you like you said that that can be a, a damaging phrase right there even if it's what you're thinking in the back of your mind all right that's it for part one of Nate and Betsy's interview with, of Marguerite in our next episode, she'll be sharing some ways they support players emotionally, how she gets support on her journey, and she'll be sharing her perspective on effective coaching and misperceptions around coaching. Thanks for listening into the podcast. Be sure to subscribe uh, to the podcast as well as our newsletter to get the coaching notes. 
and leave us a review and share this episode with others if you found it valuable.